Well, thank you, Michael. And coming right up this soon after the, the pastor's offering, Bob, I just want to say thank you for sharing your words, but really thank you, Bethesda. There are, there are many places the Lord can put each of us, regardless of our occupation. And uh, it's really an amazing thing whenever you find yourself right where he puts you, and then you just, you just bubble up with an, an, uh, just enthusiasm and, and appreciation. And that really is kind of the heart of all us pastors. We love to serve you. And we know we fall short. <laughs> and we know we rely on his grace. And, but man, this is a blessing to be here. So thank you guys very much. And thank you for your words. I got some bad news for you. <clears throat> Did you guys realize there are like eight shopping days until Christmas? Like just saying that, I see, I see like panic like run over people's faces and, and like over here in the Teen Challenge, I'm getting a little bit of this spirit. It's like a shut your mouth, Josh, spirit. <clears throat> you don't have to remind us of that. I mean, this is, this is a really, really, uh, this is a difficult time. And yet, since we're counting days, I also want to count the days. We have 16 days until something else. And that is, we start this. Together, I know Pastor Michael talked about it. You've been seeing a lot about it. Pastor Dan has shared several, several times. But we start this, and honestly, I'm really excited about it. Are you guys excited about this? Yeah. And I'm excited that you're excited. And I know Pastor Dan's excited that I'm excited that you're excited because there's a lot of excitement here, and that's exciting. James 4.8 says, draw near to God, and he will. Yeah, that's a great, great promise. Does anybody, this is a really obvious question. I think I know the answer to it. But seriously, ask yourself, seriously, does anybody desire a deeper relationship with the Lord? Yeah? I mean, really, a deeper relationship to the Lord. And the good news is, based on so many scriptures, we know that God promises us that if we come near to him and we leave our ways and we cling to his ways and we cling to him, he will come to us and he will draw near to us and unless you just happen to live in one of those little slivers of time where the Lord is so fed up that he has literally turned his back and he's not listening and we see that in the scripture a few times unless you're in one of those times and I don't think we are we have this promise hanging over us that if we will draw near to him he will draw near to us the note in my study bible next to James 4 8 says when we demonstrate our dependence on God through time in his word and prayer And by following the guidance of his Holy Spirit, God promises to be with us and to make his presence and blessing and love known to us in a special way. So I asked you earlier, do you want to have a deeper relationship with the Lord? How about this one? Do you want to experience God's blessing and his love, his presence? I mean, is there anything better than his presence? I mean, really, when you get to your whole list of wants, is there really anything better than God's presence? I don't think it is. Even in the darkest, most remote times, his presence is there, and you really are, you really are good. Recently, pastor has used the word surprise several times. I don't know if you've caught it, some at prayer meetings, some here on the the pulpit on a Sunday morning, but he said surprise, like, let's just see what the Lord might have for us, or, you know, I'm expecting this surprise, a surprise of the Lord, what he may do. I want to echo the idea this morning that I really believe that God is going to surprise us as we start this process. And I want us to just kind of posture ourselves and our hearts and 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 just raise our expectation and anticipate that as we dig through the New Testament together, he's gonna surprise us. Would anybody like a surprise? 
from the Lord. Isn't that a, isn't that a fun thought? Like, I don't know what it's going to be, but if it's from the Lord, what we know is he's the father. He's a good giver. He's a good, he gives good gifts. I mean, we know that's the case. And so he's going to surprise us. And I'm really excited about that. And that's one of the reasons I really am excited about this. I'm excited about this for me. I think it's going to be a nice little kick in the pants for me and for my family, and for a lot of you. I think this is gonna be a really good time. Ran across a quote by A.W. Tozer, I loved it. Said something like this, God may not have favorites, but he does have intimates. If we draw in near, if we come near to the Lord, he's gonna draw near to us, and I'm expecting some pretty cool stuff in the coming days, amen? All right, and just, as I say that, I'm not talking about legalistically or humanistically like, hey, if I do this, then God has to do this. I'm relying on the fact that the Lord is a loving, amazing, giver of good gifts kind of dad. And if I draw near to him, he's going to draw near to me. And I'm, I'm just, ex- I really am excited about that. So who's up for some surprises in 2019? <laughs> me too. All right, I want to tell you a story. And uh, it, it, it kind of goes back several years. It's whenever Amber and I or when I went back to school, uh, Amber and I and the kids, we all picked up and moved to seminary housing, which was this really oddball idea, and it just kind of came to life in our hearts, and we did it, and honestly, we loved it. You would think moving from about 2,000 square foot to 1,100 would be a problem, but it really wasn't. We embraced it and, until it was, like two and a half years of it. That was, that was kind of the end of that, but we loved it, and it was great. So we moved, and we came to love the end of the semester. Are there any students here? End of the semester, you know what I'm talking about? You just love it. Like right there, I see a big old smile. End of the semester, the exams are done. <sighs> the papers are written, hallelujah. You finally get the stress off. It is, life is good. And we loved it for those reasons. But I want to be honest with you. We loved it for another reason. Because at the end of the semester, people move away. And when you live in seminary housing, you don't even know where I'm going with this. You think you know where I'm going. But people move away. And you know what happens when you live somewhere for a while? You collect stuff. And then when you move away, you realize, I have been collecting stuff. And you can't take it all with you. And so around the end of every semester, we just kind of look around on our walks, as we drive, just kind of passing by. We like to call ourselves treasure hunters, <laughs> the Garys do. Some call them trash diggers. I don't really like that term. I, I might settle on dumpster diving. Has anyone ever dumpster dove? I mean, seriously, this is, this is a generational thing in the Garys. Maybe you're too, much, you know, too big for that, but we, we really do. We dumpster dive. I am not scared. To walk by that dumpster, just looking around it. That chair looks pretty good. That weight set, I ain't lifted in a few years. I'll probably take that home. I'm not even scared to get up next to that dumpster and look in there. Look in there for some stuff. Anybody ever done this? Be honest. I tell you what, sometimes you start looking in there and you just... You just thought, because there's something really good in there. Well, anyway, I want to tell you, I found a treasure about four years ago. 
And it wasn't even in the dumpster this time. It was leaning up backwards against the back, the, the side of the dumpster. Oh my goodness. And it was a frame. It was a piece of art. It was this big. It is in my office right now, Michael. And you know what? I didn't bring it in here. Because I don't have to have a prop every time I speak. Do you realize you can give a message without a prop? <laughs> And, and, because I forgot it, <laughs> I forgot it, I was supposed to grab it, and I was just looking for a water bottle, I forgot it. Anyway, but I do have a picture, I'll show you a picture. So anyway, I found this frame, and it was backed up against the dumpster, I grabbed it, and bam, look at that, Norman Rockwell. Now I know for a split second I was thinking, is it an original? No, it was not an original. Although, since I've had it, though, I have researched it, and I've studied it, and I wanted to learn more about it. And what I did learn is my copy is a 1992 reprint, and it's on canvas. It's really nice. I mean, it has a nice wooden frame. I looked it up on eBay. They sell for 150 to 300 bucks all the time. It's nice, beautiful. Uh, but I just love the picture because it's Christmas, and so every year we set it up next to our record player, that uh, grandma and grandpa got us last year, back, right th back over there. Hey, Debbie, hey, Lance. We set it right there. In fact, if you come over to our house, you'll see it. But anyway, we, we set it, and I like the picture. And in fact, if you look at it, this is a town in Massachusetts. It's called Stockbridge. And uh, this is the main street, and it still looks like this today. The middle right there, you see a little Christmas tree in the square window. That was actually Norman Rockwell's studio for several years. And in fact, he started this painting in 1956, ended it in 1967. That sometimes happens with painters. They like kind of lose interest and they just put this aside. Anyway, he finished. so part of the time that he was in that studio, he was actually working on this painting. So anyway, the whole picture is just great. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of cool buildings. You see the little the red car with the Christmas tree and all the people walking around. It just kind of takes you back to days gone by. Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Norman lived there for 25 years, the last 25 years of his life. Uh, in this painting, what you, you'll also notice that he did take a couple of artistic uh, liberties. Uh, the main one is there's no mountains. <laughs> he just kind of threw that in there. And, but I guess he can do that to make his town look even better. But anyway, as I researched and I, and I, and I kind of grew in knowledge of the, of the painting, I just really, I really enjoy it. And uh, it's something we actually treasure, even though it was discarded, even though it was just kind of trash for somebody else. But we really, really like it. And this year, I started researching it some more. And I found out that on December 2nd, they've been doing this for about 30 years, on December 2nd, they shut down the street in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And you can actually enter into the painting. And they bring in old cars and they park them in all the spots. And they bring in that 1955 Mercury with the Christmas tree on top. And they park it right in the right spot. And there's carolers over at the Red Lion Inn. And there's hot cocoa. And there's, you know, chestnuts roasting on open fires, I guess. And then, you know, just all this stuff. And you're just walking around. And a lot of times you'll see these pictures in these videos. And it's actually snowing. I mean, it is just awesome. And I just love it. And I want to tell you that... The more I learn about this painting, the more we love it. The more we learn about this painting, the more we talk about it, the more we show other people when they come over, the more we learn, the more it actually affects our actual lives. In fact, Amber and I, we talked about it. As soon as we found out that December 2nd 
You can go and enter into the painting. In fact, the museum is just right around the corner too. That's, this, the painting's eight foot long. You can go see it at the Norman Rockwell Museum. But as soon as we found out about this, I jumped on Google Maps. It's like, it's two and a half hours from New York City, two and a half hours from Boston. We're gonna be there. It is gonna affect my life, my vacation, because we're gonna go. So I say all that to say, in the very same way, as we look at the Bible, the more we know about it, the more we learn about it, the same reaction should occur. It's often neglected, it's often discarded, like my painting. Uh, Even in the Old Testament, you read this entire story of Josiah, who follows up, Hezekiah is a good king, well then Manasseh was was a bad king until the very end, and then his son Amon was a Another bad king followed in the bad ways of Hezekiah. And then Josiah pops up and he, he finds, they find this book of the law. And you just, it's a beautiful story of finding the Bible. In his day, in his time, it was neglected. It was discarded. It was literally discarded. It was just kind of cast away and they found it. So you see these things. It's neglected. The Bible's discarded. But nonetheless, it is an incredible book. And it's full of surprises. Surprises for me, surprises for you, surprises for your kids, your grandkids, your neighbor, the original readers, it's an amazing, amazing book. So this morning, what I want to do is I just want to share three or four just kind of oddball things about the Bible. And then we're going to go down that, that road a little bit, and then I'll share another story, and then we'll close. Is that good? All right, so no, just no falling asleep. Hang in with me. Here's the first one. Did you know that when it comes to ancient documents, you want lots of copies, and you want the older ones, because the older the better. That makes them more reliable. So did you know, the best I could figure out, the second most copies available of any ancient writing, because the Bible has got the most, of anything is Homer's Iliad, or Iliad, however you say that. About 1,800 copies, the oldest one dates 400 years after it was written. So it was, it was written by Homer. The oldest copy that they've been able to find is 400 years removed from Homer, okay? That's the Iliad. That's the, it's got the most copies, over 1,800 copies. Caesar, if you want to learn about Caesar, you probably learn about him through what we read about him as he was engaged in the Gallic Wars. There's 251 copies. So all that we know about Caesar comes from 251 copies of text. And the oldest one is not 400 years removed from it when it was written. It's 950 years. So this is written in a thousand years later. That's the newest copy we got. Now how many know that over that time some things may have changed? (laughs) Some embellishments may have happened, some errors, I mean intentional or unintentional, some stuff could have happened. And I I grant that. And now by the way, when I say copies, I'm not talking about like Barnes and Noble. Like I'm not talking about like old, old manuscripts. There are more copies of of Homer's Iliad and, and the Caesar stuff out in the, news, in, the, in, the, in the bookstores. I'm talking about old manuscripts. So 1,800 plus, 251, removed by 400 years, removed by 950 years. Here's the New Testament, the New Testament that we're about to go through together. Check this out. You know how many they got of the old manuscripts? Over 24,000. Over 24,000. Second place is 1,800. Over 24,000, and it's growing and growing and growing. My numbers are about five years old on the New Testament. So 24,000, and the oldest copy, 50 years removed from the original. That's pretty impressive. 
when it comes to ancient manuscripts that are hiding in caves and buried and wars and fires and all this stuff that's happened through having documents of your New Testament that, that are like 50 years old, that is unheard of in ancient uh, manuscripts. And yet that's our New Testament. That's what we have going for us whenever we look at it. So here's a follow-up question, because I'm sure this, this, you've already thought about this. Did you know, or did you know, that we didn't have and we don't have the original manuscripts. Like the oldest ones are still copies, 50, 60, 70, 80 years removed. That's gonna bug some of you. <laughs> that bugged me for a little while. But nobody has original manuscripts of these old things. The, 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 what you want though are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of copies that you can compare and what you want are really, really old ones that are really close and that's what we have in the New Testament. Uh, and what I mean by lots of copies is, let's say you find 100 copies of a certain time period and 98 of them say, you know, Jesus is the son of God, S-O-N. And one joker, he puts the son, the S-U-N of God. Well, that's a mistake. But because you have so many copies, you can say, okay, this was just a scribal error. This is just, they just, you know, repeated a word or whatever. And so lots of copies, really old ones. That's what makes it so amazing. The most fun way to show this is Isaiah. Uh, I'm sure you guys have heard the stories of when Isaiah the, the oldest book of Isaiah was found uh, pretty recently, just in the last 50, 60 years. It was a part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You guys know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Yeah, that was like a treasure trove. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documents, not just manuscripts, like biblical manuscripts, but just like records and historical stuff, even a, 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 a copper scroll with like a treasure map, really cool stuff. Anyway, the story goes like this. If you haven't heard it, I'll give it really briefly. There were these shepherd boys that are stuck out on the side of these mountains. In fact, I got some pictures of these uh, mountains. This is Qumran. So this is what Qumran looks like. And you'll see like the very middle of the screen, but the very right, there's a little dark spot. That's a cave. Uh, and then you look a little further, top left corner, there's a cave there. Now, let's, let's see the next one here. Uh, that right there, this is my way of keeping records. That's cave number four. Does anybody else do that? <laughs> You're welcome. All right, that's cave number four. It's like when you're researching, there's, there's a dozen or more, more, but it's amazing. Here's another one here. This is just proof that I was actually there. You don't wear those hats because they look good. You wear them because it's practical, okay? I got two more pictures. If you're at the Qumran, if you're at the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, looking around that area, you really need to check out the Dead Sea. It really is that close. You just hop in the van and you drive a little further and you're at the Dead Sea. I'm not sure if you're laughing at me or the guy to the right of the screen there. Perfect timing. Uh, and then one more, just because I want to brag, it, you really do float. It's really, <laughs> really, really fun and will burn your eyes. All right. So the story are the shepherds are, are walking through these, these really desert conditions and they chunk, you know, as kids do, they start throwing rocks. They throw a rock, goes through one of those openings, and instead of it just hearing a thud, they hear, hear pottery shards smashing. I'm like, what was that? Maybe it's treasure. So they go up there and they were disappointed. It wasn't treasure. It was just a bunch of old manuscripts. So they sold a few of them, made a few bucks. But <laughs> over time, other people made millions of bucks because this is really, really, really important stuff. So one of the ones that they found in there was Isaiah. And you can actually see uh, replicas, I think, in, uh, I think in Washington. There's a Bible museum that has it. But definitely over in, in Jerusalem, you can see replicas. And they pull out the originals every once in a while. But an entire Isaiah, it's huge. She's huge and it's all intact. And the crazy thing about that, the cool thing about this, and the way it really uh, brings me confidence in the Word of God is we talk about needing old manuscripts, we talk about needing lots of manuscripts to, to discover and to, to compare. This was like the premier example of this. They find this document, this Isaiah, and 
To this point, skeptics would scoff at Christians and say, you can't trust Isaiah. The, the oldest document is from 900 years A.D., after death, 900 years. This is like so, this is like a baby. This is new. You can't trust it. This is ridiculous. Well, then the Dead Sea Scrolls are found, and they date this Isaiah a 1,000 years earlier. A 1,000 years earlier. They go from 900 A.D. to 125 before Christ. Just amazing. And so what that means is, well, first of all, the skeptics don't stop being skeptics. They just find something else to be the problem, right? Whenever you're talking with people, if you're really trying to lead them to Christ and they have a problem, it's always good just to say, hey, is this issue really what's keeping you from Christ? Or as soon as we find an answer to this, are you just gonna come up with something else? Is this just a smokescreen that you can, for disbelief? And if they'll probably usually answer you that. And when they do, if they really say, no, this is really, really bugging me. I can't get over the fact that my mother, you know, suffered through cancer or whatever, whatever the issue is. If that's really bugging them, you help them. And then you remove that roadblock and they find Christ, and it's amazing. But if you ask them ahead of time and they say, no, not really, I'll just come up with something else, then you know, spend your time, but realize that skeptics will, will stay skeptics until the Lord opens up their eyes. Okay, that's a side note. All right, so, um, so it's, it's a thousand years older, and here's why it's important. Again, we're just looking at the scripture today, not even a scripture, perhaps, or, you know, by, but like the scripture in hopes of growing your appetite growing your understanding, growing your knowledge a little bit because we're about to dig into it and I want you to know that it's an amazing book and it's trustworthy. Uh, so here's why that Isaiah piece is so important. When Jesus was entering into his ministry, he was handed a scroll to read. Do you remember this? And it was Isaiah 61. It was Isaiah 61. And the, and the skeptics would say, you don't even know what was on that scroll. You don't even know if those are the right words because your latest copies thousand years, 900 years after Christ. Well, then they find this new one. And here's what, Isaiah, here's what, uh, here's what the scroll says, or here's what the scripture says. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. When we found, when we, like I was there, <laughs> when they found, isn't that how it is? Today when the Cowboys win, we are gonna win. But if by chance they lose, can you believe those guys? I mean, they lost again. Anyway, when we found the scriptures, this Dead Sea Scroll, what it basically did is it proved that the Isaiah that Jesus was handed and read is the same Isaiah that we have in our New Testaments today because it predates Christ by 100 years. Now I'm talking about the man, <laughs> not, the, not, the, not the God. But it predates Christ. And so when they compare this Isaiah from 900 and this Isaiah from 1,000 years earlier, here's what they found, about 97% the same. And you're like, whoa, we need 100. <laughs> well, the, the, the differences are little things, like they misspelled a word, or they duplicated a word twice, or they were supposed to, if I'm using English, they, they, they did T-H-E-R-E, -E. it was supposed to be T-H-E-I-R, you know, okay. 
but that wasn't doctrinally different. Like they never came across one that said, please murder people, and then it said, actually don't murder people. It was never that, not that drastic. So doctrinally it was, it was fine. So I say, that, I say all that to say, and just bring that little nugget up, just to say, we have an incredible New Testament. We have an incredible Old Testament. We have an incredible Bible, and it is light years beyond anything else out there in ancient manuscripts. And I know about that much, but you dig, you dig deep into this, this rabbit hole, and it's amazing how trustworthy our scripture is. I believe because God's protected it for us throughout time. I also believe that people recognize throughout history its value because of the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, that when they would read it, whether it was 100 after death or whether it was 500 after death or whether it was today, they read it and this Holy Spirit inside of them says, you know what, that resonates with truth. That is real. Whereas other books didn't do so much. Like the Gospel of Peter, nah, I don't know, there's some contradictions. That it did. But the Holy Spirit resonated in people throughout time, throughout history, and that's one of the ways we protected. And we have this beautiful scripture still here. Another one is the scribes really took it seriously. I mean, the scribes really took it seriously. They would double check, triple check. I remember one time that listening to or reading something and the scribes would like, when they were gonna write the name God, they would make sure they hadn't just dipped their pen because if they did that and they placed it on the papyrus, it might make a blotch. And that's God's name. So they were really careful. They would, they would dip it and then they would write something and then they would continue. They just took it really seriously. Another one, did you know? And I was almost gonna leave this one out. But I was wondering further, and have wondered further, I wonder why God didn't allow the original autographs to make it. I mean, certainly he, certainly he could have, right? I mean, he's, he's God. And so that kind of bugged me. It, not like, not my, sh- my faith is shaking or anything, but like, it just kind of bugged me. Like, I wonder why. I mean, 50 years is so close. Why not just let the original survive? And so I just Googled that. And I started searching, I started reading some of my commentaries and stuff, and I, and I came across uh, with a few thoughts. And uh, like I said, I was gonna leave this out, but I think for you that think like me, um, you'll enjoy this, because it was bugging me. And so I did about 10, 20 minutes of work, and here's a few things, and I just wrote it down. I could try to paraphrase this, but it's a lot of stuff, so if it's okay, I'm just gonna read it straight to you. This is just my, my uh, bringing all these pieces together. It says, first of all, to the answer of, why didn't God just let the originals survive? First of all, the early church was actually using the original autographs. They were actually using it. They were being read and passed around because they were written for the benefit and training of a small, burgeoning group of believers. They would have had no idea that a museum 2,000 years later would even want these documents. Next, the early church wasn't even trying to create a Bible. They were focused on the Great Commission, and on their own lives and circumstances. They were on the cutting edge of a new world and, they were, and there were no high dollar speaking tours or book deals. There was nothing monetarily to gain from a life surrendered to Jesus. In fact, there was everything to lose. Their only benefit was a life reconciled to God and that was enough then and that is still enough now. Only later did the church begin to gather the inspired books of God and the canon of scripture was made primarily to answer doctrinal questions, fight off encroaching heresies, guide the churches in knowing what should and shouldn't be read publicly in their services, and it proved very helpful in distinguishing which books were worth dying for and which were not. You gotta remember, these are real folks. 
their lives are being turned upside down. Man knocks on your church door, says, give me the Shepherd of Hermes. We heard you have a copy of the Shepherd of Hermes. It's one of the books that didn't make it into the New Testament. If you don't give it, we're going to kill you. Well, they say, well, God bless you. Here you go. <laughs> Shepherd of Hermes, it's all yours. But if they ask for Paul's letter to Galatians, and they know that this is so important to our faith, and there's only a handful of copies, or this is the original copy, or whatever, they would say, you're going to have to kill me. I'm not telling you where it is. So stuff like that really, really happened. That's obviously a far cry from where we are today. Pastor Dan was telling me today that, or yesterday that, Every home has like 11 Bibles today, maybe more. It's a long way. One other thought that I found interesting. One author also wondered if the originals were to have survived. Now, I'm sharing this because this is stuff I find interesting. I know half of you don't care. <laughs> I know half of you are like, I'm going to continue to read into that. And it's for you guys that I want to tell that this to. One author wondered if the originals were to have survived. Would the people have worshipped them? That That like they did Gideon's ephod in Judges 8.27, and like they did the bronze snake made by Moses that Hezekiah had to later destroy because the people were burning incense to it in 2 Kings 18.4. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why the Lord didn't allow the originals to exist, but it's pretty amazing what we have, and it's pretty fun to, to look into it. And in fact, I would even encourage you guys, as you're going through Immerse this year, make it a habit whenever you come up against something that you just don't really know, make it a habit to do a little five, 10 minute search. Here's what I found that in my life personally, whenever I have a question, it kind of gets thrown out there and it's okay to have a question or two, but whenever I have another one, I throw it out there, now it's three and then it's four and then it's five and it's six. I start to get this mountain of questions and it really erodes at my faith and it erodes at my, at, at my, in my walk with the Lord and I think it, it nurtures doubt. When in reality, what we really need to do is walk over you got this pile that's holding you, that's kind of become a, a stumbling block or even a wall to your faith. you got to pull those things down one at a time, do a 10, 15, 20-minute search, ask somebody who might know, and come up with some answers because there really are rational, logical, intelligent answers to just about everything we ask. Some things you just got to trust the Lord. Uh, but a lot of it really, if it's really bugging you, it hasn't been bugging you for 20 years, stop it. Go study a little bit. I mean, it, it, and, and realize that the, that the Lord is, he speaks to you and as you engage him with your mind, uh, he's gonna engage your heart and that's how it should work. All right, let's, let's do one more thing. Can we do one more? Okay, I can't tell if you're really bored or just listening. <laughs> um, a lot of you already know this one. It's come up lately a couple times. Did you know that the chapter and verses were added later? And therefore, they are not inspired, but they are helpful, except when they're not. They're helpful in the case that it's really nice to know, I need encouragement for this. And you go right to it, and you can find it, and you can memorize that one little verse. And that really is helpful. And it's great for memorization of Scripture and those sorts of things, and you can find it. But it also creates in us, uh, it creates in us this, this idea that if we're going to go to the text, that we're going to a Scripture. Like text now means a verse. Text used to mean a book. Let's look at the text. That was the text of Isaiah. That was the text of Galatians. But now it's a verse. And so the, the problem with that is if we read like that and read like that only, which is the opposite of what we're going to be doing really soon with this, if we read like that, we take things out of context. 
We go in, we read something, and we're like, wow, yeah, I can apply that to my life. And really, you can't in that situation because it's out of context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay. All things, huh? Like fly? Like make that girl fall in love with you? Like get that promotion? You can do all things? Like really just because Christ strengthens you? And you start weaving these things. And it's religious and it feels good, but it's not in context. And the context there is, it's Paul saying, man, when things were going good and I had a bunch of money, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When things were going bad, I didn't have a lot of money, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's strengthening me through this despite what I have and what I don't have. That's the context. Can you apply it a little bit further? Probably. Probably. We do that all the time. But can you apply it to everything? No. Because it's out of context. That's one of the dangers of that. So the Archbishop Stephen Langston in the 13th century is credited for the chapter separations. The Frenchman Robert Esteen is credited for the verse separations later in the 16th century. Both helpful, both enjoyable, glad we have those. This one doesn't. I think it'll be fun for us to go through this one uh, knowing that we're used to the other one. So that's, that one's that one. All right, so those are a few things. And the whole idea was just to throw out some things about the book. Maybe it whets your appetite for more. Maybe it increases your knowledge. Probably for most of you, it just reminded you of the stuff that you already that you already knew, but I'm hoping that it would just kind of raise your expectation, raise your anticipation that we are about to dig into an amazing book, one that has been protected, one that has stuff inside of it for me and for those that are around us. It's going to be an amazing time, and it's okay to expect, and it's okay to, to desire and to want and to even get a little giddy as we're about to get into it. A couple more things. I want to read again what I read earlier, but this time I want to insert the word Bible where earlier I was talking about a painting. Okay. All in all, the more we come to know about this painting, oh, no, no. All in all, the more we come to know about this Bible, the more we love it, the more we talk about it, the more we show other people when they come over, the more we learn, the more it affects our actual lives. Let's anticipate. Let's expect. Let's get intimate with the Lord through this process. And I think the Lord is going to draw right on back near us as we do it. I want to finish with a story. And if you're a really fast driver, you can catch kickoff. We have some missionaries. They were actually our missionary of the week uh, two or three weeks ago, the Shermans. It's Ron and Anna Sherman. And they're the ones that are out of Acuna, Mexico. And they're the ones that have the children's home. And I really love what they're doing there. I really wasn't aware of them. I know we've been supporting them as a church for a long time. But I'm starting to dig into their story and reading the newsletters and really like what they're doing. Basically, they're taking, uh, they're taking really, really high-risk kids and they're putting them in, in their children's home. And they're really specific. We are not an orphanage. We are a children's home. Like they want to teach family. They want to teach the home life. They want to teach them that because they don't have an opportunity otherwise to see that. They even say we're not a child warehouse. We are a children's home. So anyway, they take these, these kids in and they were reflecting back on a story of America and Gustavo. And I've got a picture of America and Gustavo. This is when they're much older, they're like 16, 15, something like that. But earlier, they tell a story when they first got them. Now these guys were rescued at the age of six and five, rescued from their grandmother and their uncle because they had received custody of these kids and instead of taking them in, nurturing them, raising them, loving them, they, in their heart, decided they were going to sell them. We heard terrible stories about 
people illegally sold off to, to people who want to adopt children. That wasn't it. We hear really, really, really terrible stories about sex trafficking. That wasn't even it. Uh, I'll be choice with my words because I know we've got some kids in here, but like they were literally going to sell them for parts. This actually happens. Just awful evil, and they had arranged a deal with these people. And they were, when they were finalizing the deal, they show up to deliver the kids and to get their money, and it was actually an FBI sting operation. And so they busted, and those kids were rescued. So then, those kids are taken by the government and placed into uh, an orphanage there in Mexico, and over a period of time, they were abused, neglected, and the orphanage was shut down. So they go from one bad thing to another bad thing to another bad thing. Then, the government takes them over to Anna and Ron Sherman and say, would you take these kids in? And they did. They took them in. And Anna tells a story of their first day there at the house. They're cooking breakfast, and Anna burns the toast. She takes the toast, it's just totally charred, throws it in the trash, moves on with her day, into their afternoon, into the evening. Because this is a family home, they tuck the kids in, they pray with them, they do all the stuff like a family would do, even though there's 35 <laughs> kids there. But they have different rooms, it's all set up in a beautiful way to, to be familial. So when Anna goes to tuck in America on her first night, she's fluffing up the pillow, about to do their bedtime prayers, and as she's fluffing the pillow, she looks underneath it and she notices the burnt piece of toast, just totally charred. And she says, America, why do you have this toast? And you can imagine she said something like, well, I wasn't sure if you guys were gonna feed us tonight, so I wanted to hold on to this so me and my brother could have something to eat. Of course, when you go through abuse and neglect, you're going to be programmed, and you've got to re be reprogrammed, right? Praise God that the Lord recreates us and, and retrains us and gives us new life. He doesn't just kind of improve upon us. He gives us new life. He restores us completely. He makes us a new creation, as you read in the Scripture. So praise God, America's going to be in this process. But on this first night, Anna hears that, and of course, her heart's just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that. So in a moment of brilliance, she says, hey, America, why don't you come downstairs with me for a second? So they go downstairs, and they go down to the pantry. Now think about this. 35 kids plus some workers. That's a lot of food. That's a big pantry, right? Go to the pantry, and, say, and they open it up. They say, America, all that's your food. All that's your food. All that's your food, and the other children's here's food. This is all of our food. Oh, you're jumping ahead. That's coming next. All that's yours. Then, what you're seeing here, they had a visitor. And he wants to do something special for the kids, and so he says, what do you guys want? So he goes around one at a time. What do you want? What do you want? Bob, what do you want? You want some candy? Oh, I want candy. That's what I want, candy. All right, Lisa, what do you want? Cookies. Cookies is what I want. And so every kid, candy, cookies, cotton candy, I mean, you know, ice cream, everybody. They get to America, and she says, Potatoes. Potatoes, because she's still in the programming. <laughs> she's being reprogrammed. She's still in survival mode, and that happens, and the Lord will see them through, and she has been seen through. In fact, they showed a, a picture in this last newsletter of her receiving a brand-new car. She's 16. She's now been adopted. She lives in the United States, and she was getting a car, and the smile on the potatoes girl is the same smile on the car girl, and it's great because the Lord is pre reprogramming her, and it's amazing. But so she says, I want potatoes. And the guy was like, you want what? She wants you, I want potatoes. So he goes to the store. He gets all the ice cream, all the candy, all the cotton candy, all that stuff, and a biggest sack of potatoes he could find. And he brings them all back. And he gives 
her the bag of potatoes. And again, look at her smile. She's like, potatoes, this is great. I love it. So today in closing, I want us to remember that story. And I want to imagine the moment that those potatoes showed up. I want to imagine the moment where Anna pulls back the pantry and says, all of this is yours. And like imagine like what her little brain is thinking. She's going from hiding a piece of burnt toast for survival now to that whole pantry is mine. I want you to imagine that. And now when we go in on January 1st and you open up that first page, I want you to have the same amazement, the same anticipation that the Lord just might surprise me, that the Lord just might have something for me because he does, because he does, because he does. If we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. If we will do our best, we're not gonna earn it, but if we will show our dependence upon God through the reading of the word, through prayer. Some of you guys need to start coming to prayer on Sunday night. While you're doing this in the word, come to prayer. Show your dependence on the Lord. If, as we do that, let's not be so surprised when the Lord doesn't just say, you know what? You wouldn't believe what I've got in this pantry for you. Let's pray. Lord, you are the great I am. And you have said that if we draw near you'll draw near to us. And that is a fantastic promise. And so I'm just imagining the needs, the desires, the wants for provision, for hope, for security. Some people are needing destiny and purpose in their lives, healing, encouragement, maybe correction, maybe salvation, maybe love, maybe knowledge. So many surprises, so many ways that you might go. It is our commitment to draw near to you in the reading of your word, because how else have you chosen to reveal yourself to us but first through your word? And so as we learn more about you, as we learn more about your ways, and as we bend our will, and as we lean into you, and as we further depend on you, would you just surprise us in 2019? That would be a win. That would be amazing. And who knows, who knows what you might have in store for us. I bless this church, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.